All right, before we jump in, will you pray with me? Lord, you are good. You are good. As we're gonna learn today, so many times, all you ask your people to do is to remember. You don't ask us to take grand steps of faith every day. In fact, the greatest step of faith you ask us to do is to remember that you are good, that you are holding on to us. I just felt as we sang, and I feel now, Father, that there are some people in the room who just really need to hear that, that you are holding on to them despite what they think, that you are holding on. As we jump into your story today, Lord, as we consider um, how you interacted with your people Israel and how you interact with us today, would you give us receptive minds, receptive hearts? Would you silence every voice that is not yours um, so that we might be able to, to hear your still, small, and good voice today? It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So if you're joining us for the first time, we are in a series called The Paradigm. And in it, we are looking at the book of Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible. Um, most Jews hold Exodus to actually be the first book of the Bible. Genesis is sort of the prologue. It's the primeval story. And Exodus is like where the action begins. And we're calling it the paradigm because it is our contention that within Exodus, you have all the characters, all the plot lines, all the details for any people group in any period past, present, future. So we can read Exodus and see ourselves in it, see what's going on in our world today. Um, the characters are in a sense categories. So you look at the, the character of Pharaoh and you realize that Pharaoh was not just this one historical Ramses II or whatever. There's Pharaohs all over the place, right? You look at plagues, you look at the way God intervenes, which we're gonna talk about today, and you realize, oh, he still intervenes like this. So that's why we're calling it the paradigm because it is a paradigmatic event where we can see God utilize the same methods all the time. So thus far, we've talked about, we opened the series by talking about that in essence, what we have in Exodus are two competing political theories, two competing kingdoms. One political theory, Egypt's, which is based on fear and oppression. And the other political theory, God's, which is based on love and freedom. And they're battling it out. We talked about how God prepared Moses and how he shepherded for 40 years. Uh, he was in his desert season where he didn't know where God was. But through that, that vocation, he was formed to be the shepherd of Israel. We talked about how when God appeared to him, what was so radical about that, that revelation is that he ends it by saying that Moses, pick up your staff. The instrument of God's choice is the shepherd's staff and not the sword, and not the royal scepter. This is a humble God. The God of Israel, the God of Christians, the God of the universe is a humble God who refuses to save the world through violence. He uses peace. And then last week, uh, our friend Zach Martin, um, who leads Trellis, which is a nonprofit organization that does some tremendous work in Brooklyn, he came and talked to us about using resistance and rest as two instruments to, to oppose systems of injustice. And so today what we're gonna talk about are the plagues, the plagues as a grouping. Um, 
So we're gonna read chapter seven through chapter 13 today. I know it's a large amount, but I really don't know how to cut. Guys, I'm totally kidding. We're not gonna read all that. Yeah, <laughs> y'all believe me for a second. <laughs> we're not gonna read all that. But that's the text that we're, we're, we're biting off, chapter seven through 13. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna give like the Cliff Notes version of what's going on. Cause many of the plagues, um, if you're a Christian or not, uh, you hopefully saw, what was that guy's name? Charlton Heston, is that right? The 10 Commandments, yeah. Man, Charlton Heston, he was, he was a good looking Moses. Um, <laughs> woo, anyway. Um, so you know like the story basically where, where God uh, speaks to Moses, Moses comes to Pharaoh and he starts demanding that he let his people go and he afflicts them with 10 plagues. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a large chapter of the story but they have similar elements. So I'm gonna detail the elements and then we're gonna work through some of the theological through lines that I see in them. Um, that might be important for us today. So here are the basic elements of the plague narratives. Now you don't see all these elements in each of the 10 plagues, but they're there in some of them, okay? That's how it works. Moses speaks to Pharaoh on behalf of Yahweh, and he tells Pharaoh, let Yahweh's people go. Why? So that they may go worship me in the desert. That's important, we're gonna talk about that next week. Set them free to worship me. If not, this plague will afflict you. Pharaoh subsequently says no. The plague, and there are 10. The Nile, the water source of Egypt is turned to blood. Frogs come out of the Nile, come out of the waterways. Gnats, flies, uh, boils afflict the livestock of Egypt. And then boils afflict the Egyptians. Hail falls, locusts swarm. Darkness, so dark that you can't see your, your hands, um, afflicts Egypt, and then it culminates with the death of the firstborn. Um, the destroyer, the destroying angel, passes through Egypt and kills every firstborn, both human and animal. After the plague, at least for some of the first ones, the Egyptian magicians attempt to reproduce it, and they succeed with some of them. They reproduce some of the plagues, at least the first two then there's some sort of element of recognition of wrongdoing, either by the magicians when they realize they can't reproduce it, or uh, by the uh, Egyptian people, and they like bring their animals in before the hail, because they're like, all right, we've seen six plagues. I don't think this God's playing games. We're bringing our animals in so they don't die. And then finally by Pharaoh, he starts to recognize that he's doing wrong. Pharaoh asks after each of the plagues either to take the plague away or as it goes on, he starts asking for prayer from Moses, which is interesting. Pray to your God, not to my gods, pray to your God. Or in some of them, he asked for forgiveness. because I've done wrong. I've sinned against this Lord. Ask that he forgives me. And then finally, there's a hardening of Pharaoh's heart after every plague, except for the 10th one. After the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh goes, take your people and go. Get out of my sight. All right. So those are the elements that comprise chapter seven through 13. That's the Cliff Notes version, you're welcome. So here are four, four points that I see in this that I think are really important for us um, in no particular order. But the first one that sticks out is the nature of miracle. The nature of the miraculous, the nature of the category of miracle. What is a miracle? How does God work miracles in Exodus and in our own lives? 
I love this line by St. Athanasius, who was a church father in about the third and fourth century. And he says, miracles are a retelling in capital letters of the same message which nature writes in her crabbed cursive hand daily. Miracles are a supernatural power, God, interfering in the natural order. But this is important, not interfering outside of the natural order, but interfering directly through it. God works the miraculous through creation, not outside and not without. I.e., when God sends a plague, he sends frogs and gnats. We know those creatures. He does not send giant three-headed dogs, right? That would be to work outside of the natural order. So far as we know, other than in J.K. Rowling's world, we don't have giant three-headed dogs. That'd be cool though. God works the miraculous through creation. And what we see God doing when Athanasius says it's a retelling in capital letters of the same message nature writes daily is that God is hastening the process, but not violating the process, not working outside the process. One of the first miracles Jesus did was in Cana at a wedding feast. He turned water into wine. Friends, water is turned into wine daily. That's natural. Jesus just hastened the process. This is important um, because we'll, we'll talk about why it's important, but Rabbi Sachs says this. He goes, a miracle is not necessarily something that suspends natural law. Not necessarily. It is rather an event for which there may be a natural explanation, but which happening when, where, and how it did evokes wonder such that even the most hardened skeptic senses that God has intervened in history. So when you look at the, the plague narratives, you are apt to find scholars saying that when the Nile was turned to blood, it was actually this red sediment, you know, the geology of the red sediment, and it was sort of dislodged at the time through Moses, and it gave the appearance of blood. Or when the locusts swarmed, uh, you have like people explaining locust migratory patterns for hundreds of years or whatever. And that all may be true, but why does that make it less miraculous that it happened when, where, and how it did? See, here's why this is important and here's why you and I distrust God's form of the miraculous. Two reasons. One, we distrust the miraculous because we're old and tired of being alive. We're cynical. That's just the truth of the matter. I remember my granny, love her to death. Um, the last 10 years of her life, every summer she'd be like, this is it guys, I'm not making it to Christmas. I, uh, this, this is the one. And then Christmas would come and go and next summer, guys, goodbye. <laughs> this, is, this is the end. I'm like, okay, granny. <laughs> and she would say sometimes toward the end of her life, she goes, I'm just so tired of being alive. I've seen it all, I'm tired. And I never understood that until my wife and I started a business and a church and within two years of being married in New York City. And then there were some nights where you're like, you know what, I could go right now and I'd be fine. <laughs> I'd be all right, the church will be okay. <laughs> truth, just speaking truth, guys. <laughs> there are definitely, like, we have these moments where we're like, whoa, I am just tired of being alive. We distrust this form of the miraculous because we've grown old and tired. I love this quote, it comes from G.K. Chesterton in his book, Orthodoxy. 
and he's contrasting children and adults. And he says, here's the thing. Children have abounding vitality because they are in spirit fierce and free. Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say to the adult, do it again. And the adult does it again. I have a little nephew right now and he says, Mo. So it's like, you play with him, he's like, Mo, Mo, Mo. Do it again, do it again. Until the grown up is nearly dead. For grown up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately. He's just never gotten tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old and our father is younger than we. Maybe we're not strong enough to call the sun coming up a miracle. But I challenge you tomorrow morning when you go to work and you look at the sun coming up, imagine God saying, watch this guys, watch this. Do it again, do it again, do it again. See, we distrust the miraculous because we were like, frogs teeming, more frogs. Why would you work through frogs again? Maybe God really likes frogs. Why does that make it any less miraculous that he works through his nature, through his creation? We distrust this category of the miraculous because we've grown old and cynical. We also distrust the miraculous because we have in mind a supernatural God who would reveal himself through divine, read, I forget what I put, what did I put? Supernatural, less human, read natural ways. See, the, the fact that plagues are gnats and flies and boils with naturalistic explanations are no less miraculous and perhaps more so than if they were three-headed giant dogs. Why won't God give us a three-headed giant dog? Because God did not invent three-headed giant dogs. And this is the common, this is, I dare say, for every single one of us who has an issue with God, the God of the Bible, have an issue with Jesus, maybe you're not a Christian here today, I dare say this is the main reason why. Because you have in mind the word God and you think you know exactly how that word should be filled. That if, if God were really God, the miraculous would look like this, look like three-headed giant dogs, not frogs teeming out of the water. And don't worry, we're in good company. That's basically the, the issue with all humans. The Jews, they were thinking that the Messiah would come, but the Messiah would come as a conquering warrior. The Messiah would come and overthrow the oppressors with violence and vindicate them like that. The Messiah would not come as a poor carpenter. The Messiah would not die. See, we fill our own category. If God were God, he would act like this, X, Y, or Z. But God is God, and he acts like this, X, Y, and Z. And we spend our entire lives trying to release what we think God is and actually understanding who the real God is. We distrust the miraculous because we think if God were to work a miracle, he would do it in divine ways, not natural ways. But our God is more like a child. 
Our God is content with daisies and new suns and new moons and doing it again and again and again. And when you look at the, the whole story, Genesis through Revelation, look at the instruments of salvation that this God uses. What does he use? He uses bread. He uses wine. He uses water for baptism. He uses wood to die upon. He uses iron for nails. He uses air for the spirit. The pagans and the pantheists are close, y'all. God is a hippie. Let's be real. God loves his earth. He's not his earth. The two aren't equal, but they're close. He loves his earth. The instruments, the powerful portals where the heavens and the earth touch are bread and wine and water and wood and air. This is the category of the miracle that we find in the plagues. This is the category of the miracle that I dare say when you're looking, you'll see in your own life as well. Second thing I notice about the plagues, the plagues are not arbitrary. I know they might appear that way, but they're not. The plagues are not arbitrary. The plagues are pointed theological attacks. Pointed theological attacks in which memory is lodged in them. In a sense, God is levying a plague against Egypt and going, remember when? Now, what do I mean by that? Well, one, this wasn't a plague, this was a sign. But when Aaron threw down a staff and it became uh, a snake, all the Egyptians would know, I mean, most hold that it probably would have became a cobra. Uh, the cobra, you know, the headdress was the sign of Egypt's power. So in a sense, God's saying, I can throw you down Egypt and I can pick you up again. And when the magicians reproduce that and produce their own snakes, Aaron's snake swallows both of theirs. It's like, I got sovereignty. These are pointed theological attacks. The Nile is turned to blood. Remember, this is the same Nile where Pharaoh ordered the death of all the Hebrew baby boys. Friends, there's, there's memory in these plagues. There's a hastening of the decisions we make. If miracles, this is important, if miracles are a supernatural hastening of natural processes, plagues, the plagues are a supernatural hastening of the moral processes, the moral decisions. Paul says in Galatians 6, do not be deceived. You reap what you sow. God will not be mocked. Friends, a civilization built on dehumanizing slave labor will eventually produce rivers of blood. God just hastened the process. A civilization built on economic disparity, on social policies of racism and genocide will eventually produce rivers of blood. God just goes, let me speed this up for you. Let me show you when you're throwing the baby boys into the water, let me show you, you've already produced rivers of blood. I'm just hastening. Remember when? I do. There's memory in these plagues. There's memory. Which means, <laughs> to use Gladiator's line, what we do in life echoes in eternity. I definitely had a poster of Russell Crowe and his Gladiator in my college dorm room. I'm not lying, guys. I went to bed every night looking at Russell Crowe like, I got you, bro. What we do in life. I hear you. But that's, what it's, that's the truth. We reap what we sow. 
and not in a cruel way, simply, and that's the way the world, the moral world is, is written. The decisions we make have consequences and maybe we see them and maybe we don't. Maybe they affect us and maybe they don't, but there is memory. And so, I mean, as a personal example, you might notice whether you're new or not, Hope Brooklyn as a church, we're kind of stripped down, right? We don't, we don't have a, and it's not there's anything wrong with bells and whistles, but we just don't have a lot of bells and whistles. Even the way we structure our, our, our front, we have teaching and worship on either side of the table. The table is central. Those are intentional decisions for us. Those are intentional decisions because if the good news of this God is that we don't lead with the ways we're strong, we lead in all the ways that we're broken, then we have to have a setup that is very raw and intentional and stripped down. Or in a personal way, I love this quote that Nathan told me about uh, an author named Walter Wongren Jr. And he says, at the end of every cigarette butt tossed into the urinal is the cleaning lady picking it up. At the end of every cigarette butt tossed into the urinal is the cleaning lady picking it up. Our decisions have memory. And in these plagues, which are not arbitrary, God is mounting a systematic theological attack on the decisions of Egypt. In a sense, and I choose this word carefully, their choices are karmatized, right? And, and I know like, uh, I have a very shallow understanding of the concept of karma, but basically the decisions we make will come back on us or in our worlds or in our lives for good or ill. Their decisions, their choices involve memory and are karmatized. They're not arbitrary. The third thing about the plagues, the plagues, the category of miracle, they're not arbitrary, they involve satire. These plagues involve humor, some dark humor, but humor. Uh, one example. Uh, so the Egyptians were polytheists. They believed in a multiplicity of gods. One of them was named Hemet. And Hemet uh, was the goddess of fertility. She had a woman's body and the head of a frog. The goddess of fertility. Now check this, guys. The Nile was where Egypt threw all the Hebrew boys. The Nile killed God's people. The Nile took life. And we're told that the frogs came out of the water sources, out of the Nile and the canals. So if you're an Egyptian who believes that the goddess of fertility, of life, has a frog, and you're starting to see where you killed the baby boys of the slaves, frogs explode out to such a degree that they might kill you. There's so many. That's some dark irony right there. There's satire. There's satire. God's like, hey, this is the decisions you make. This is what's gonna happen. Or there's the gnats as well, which I think is really humorous. Um, and we'll read this passage. It's Exodus 8. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground. And throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. And they did this. And when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, Gnats came on people and animals, and all the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. And since the gnats were on people and animals everywhere, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. See, the magicians, or the, the Egyptians believed that through magic, they could become like the gods. 
Now the irony, they were only able to reproduce the first two and the sign. They could turn the stick or the staff into a snake. They could turn the Nile into more blood and they produced more frogs. The irony of that is in their efforts to engage in this battle, did they realize they made things worse for their people? Like we don't need more blood and we don't need more frogs. So in your effort to be like God, to show that you're strong too, you're kind of making things worse. The more we try to be like God, the worse we make things, which is what the folly of magicians and technocrats everywhere. The more we can manipulate nature, the more we feel like we're masters of it, the worse off we make things. Magic might be the equivalent in an era of myth what technology is in an age of science. And if you don't believe me, friends, just this past week, there was an article in the New Yorker called Mark as Red. Anyone see that? Talking about emails. The very, I mean, this is like perfectly timed. God just served up a softball for me. The very first line in this article read like this. A measure of industrial progress is the speed with which inventions grow insufferable. Anyone tired of emails? I know I'm not the only one. I'm like every hand up there. The measure of industrial progress is the speed with which inventions grow insufferable. The elevator, once a marvel of efficiency, has become a social purgatory from which most of us cannot escape too quickly. <clears throat> the builders of the first commercial airplane could not have foreseen the crushed knees and the splattered salad dressings that their machine would visit on the world. And then John Stuart Mill from 1848 says, hitherto, we need to bring hitherto back, guys. I'm starting a petition to bring hitherto back. Hitherto, it is questionable if all the mechanical inventions yet made have lightened the day's toil of any human being. Has our technological progress, which supposedly makes us masters of the universe, has it made things better for us? I mean, some of y'all who were here in the spring, we talked about smartphones, right? We talked about how smartphones give us this idea that we're like God. And for me to be like God was the omnis, right? To be omniscient, all knowing, to be omnipotent, all powerful, to be omnipresent, to be everywhere. And with the smartphone, we have all three of those things. But do we really? We're omniscient, we're all knowing. With this device, I can know anything I want, but it is being proven of something called the Google effect, where humans are actually not becoming smarter, we're becoming dumber. We don't know more stuff, we just know where to go to find it. So are we becoming better off? Omnipotent, we have power. What do we really have? We have cyber trolls, we have bullies. We have people behinding, hiding behind their keyboard, empowered to say whatever they want. Are we omnipotent? Omnipresent. We can be in all of our friends' lives on Facebook, and yet we hate our life more and more and more. Does this mastering of the elements, this becoming like the gods, is it actually making us better off? Rabbi Sachs says, technological prowess has led human beings time and again to believe they were like the gods. They could scale the heavens bend nature to their purposes, construct vast edifices to their glory. Yet in their wake, they left a trail of devastation. However great we are, we are small in the scheme of things. And this is the satire of the gnats. This is what God showed the Egyptians with the plague of lice. God's satire 
is that gnats, the smallest of creatures, that's the one that the Egyptian magicians couldn't reproduce. Not the three-headed dog. They're thinking, oh, we can, we can match this God. And then it's the smallest of creatures where they're like, that's the finger of God. God's just toying with them. He's just playing with them. And friends, just before we go any further, I'm not a Luddite, all right? I'm not against technology, evidently, okay? What I am against is how technology has led us to a point where we've forgotten how to think, where we stop asking questions of like, what is this actually doing to me? Why am I posting this picture? What is the goal behind this? What do I want people to think? We stop asking critical questions. Stop examining our life. Stop asking, am I actually better off right now or not? The plagues reminded the Egyptians of the moral decisions they've made, their satire involved in them. And the fourth thing, plagues demonstrate that to the God who transcends territories that he is sovereign over every area of the cosmos. Plague one through three deals with the water, the Nile, the frogs, the gnats. Plague four through six deals with the land, the flies, the livestock, the boils. Plague seven through nine deal with the sky, the hail, the locusts, and the darkness. God is sovereign over every area of the cosmos, and each plague demonstrates that. There is a systematic intensification of severity in these plagues. There's a building up. It's like a grand drama. The Nile and the frogs, they were, they were satirical. The gnats and the flies, well, that, it became discomforting after that. Well, then the boils killed the animals, but well, luckily they didn't touch us. Oh, well, now they're on us and it hurts really bad. And then the hail and the locusts came and they destroyed the crops. And with the loss of animals, there's no food. There's this systematic ramping up, this intensification of the plague's severity. And then, right before the last plague, the 10th plague, we have darkness, which kind of seems like a reprieve. What is God doing? Why is darkness the ninth plague? I'm sure the Egyptians were like, oh, that's it? Everyone sleep, quick. Get your strength back. Why is darkness the last plague? In Exodus 12, God says, I will perform acts of judgment against all the gods of Egypt. Not just against the Egyptians, but against all the gods of Egypt. The plagues were not just um, against the Egyptians, but against her gods. And some of y'all probably know the, the, the god Ra was the sun god. He was the, one of the highest gods in Egypt. And we talked about this in the, the first week. The name Ramses means Meses, son of Ra. So Ramses, who was Pharaoh, who was sort of the semi-divine character, derived his source of authority from the god Ra. And then God goes, poof, darkness. I control the sun too. So who are our gods that God is proving foolish in our lives? So the ninth plague, darkness. And then the death of the firstborn, the climax of the plagues. And we're told that the, the destroyer comes. God sends the destroyer. That's actually the best way to interpret it. Some have said destroying angel, but just the destroyer. God sends the destroyer and it passes through Egypt and it kills every firstborn, human and animal. Now, God had told Moses to tell the Israelites to take a lamb, slaughter it, 
and put the blood over the doorframe of your house. And where the destroyer sees the blood, it will pass over. It will pass by. It will not enter and it will not kill the firstborn. And that night there is great weeping and there's great mourning in Egypt because they awake to find their firstborns dead all across the empire. And that's what breaks the camel's back and Pharaoh goes, go, get out. And they leave and, and God says, when they go, when the Israelites leave, ask for gold and silver from the Egyptians. And they did and it was given them. And then this became a commemorative event for Israel's posterity for many, many years. Two things about the 10th plague. Satire is mournful, friends. Satire is sad. In Exodus 4, when God's talking with Moses, he says, you shall say to Pharaoh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. I have told you to let my son go that he may worship me. If you refuse to let him go, I will kill your own firstborn son. It started with the death of the babies. It ends with the death of the firstborns. There's memory and there's justice and history. It's important to realize, maybe we won't see justice in our times, but there is justice with this God and there's justice in history. But satire is sad. Also secondly, and this is important, notice it was not ethnicity that saved Israel. It was blood. We've seen already that the author is going to great lengths to show that this is not an ethnocentric story. God is not saving Israel for the sake of Israel. He's saving Israel for the sake of the world. He's saving Israel for the sake of Egypt. God loves Egypt. This is not ethnocentric. It wasn't the fact that they were Israelites that saved them. It was the fact that they obeyed God and they put the blood over their doorframe. And then the last thing, which is so unique, God announces in chapter 11 to Moses what he's about to do. We had the tale, right? Uh, the story's being recounted. The, the, ten, the nine plagues have happened. And then God goes, I'm gonna bring about one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt and on her gods. And this is what it's gonna be. And this is how it's gonna work. And God's telling Moses. And when, I, when, I, uh, when the destroyer passes and kills the firstborns, you ask for gold and you leave. Um, and this is how it's gonna happen. And then in chapter 13, that was chapter 11. In chapter 13, the action happens. We, the author recounts to us that the destroyer comes and does the work and they leave. But in chapter 12, we have this, this respite, this, this, this brief moment um, where there's like this, this rest in the action and the insertion of a liturgy. Now remember, a, a liturgy is basically a public pras, a practice, a public practice, a group practice that forms people around doing it. And what we get in chapter 12, the reader is told about the Passover, the meal, and how this is about to be initiated and this practice will guide Israel, will be a guiding symbol from here on out. And here's how they will eat the lamb and here's the conditions of the lamb that they kill and here's how to cook it and here's how, how much uh, in the month and the day and here's how to eat it. It's almost like the Shakespearean aside. Um, Y'all know Shakespearean aside, so like the drama's happening in the play and then like everyone freezes on stage and one character sort of steps to the audience 
and sort of recount some details. Be like, hey, here's what's going on right now. Uh, here's, and all the, all the actors are frozen on stage. The action stops. And one character goes, now, just so you have some background here and some context here, here's what's about to happen. Okay, action. And it starts back up again, right? That's what chapter 12 is. God says to Moses in chapter 11, through the story, this, the action's happening, I'm gonna bring one more. And in chapter 13, it happens. But in chapter 12, time freezes, time stops. And the author addresses the Israel people going, and this is the meal, and this is why it's important. And this is gonna be a commemorative event that your children are gonna ask you what this meal means, and this is what you're gonna tell them. No less than three times we're told in chapter 12 that this will be a day of remembrance to tell and teach your children about. History has memory for good or ill. And I had a professor in seminary, and I said this earlier, and one of the greatest lessons he taught me or taught our class, he said, the greatest act of faith is to remember. The greatest act of faith is to remember. Notice in both the Jewish people and in Christians, the defining moment, the defining liturgy for both of them is a meal and an act of remembrance. Through this meal, we remember who God is and what he has done. In chapter 12, God says, the author says to Israel, this is why you do it. This is what you tell your children so that they remember what I have done for your people. The greatest act of faith. I don't know what you're going through in life, friends. I don't. But the greatest step of faith you can make today is to remember where God has been in your life before. And don't lose that. Don't lose that. And then go share a meal with some friends and remember together. That's what God has called us to be. And just, I and mean, this isn't part of the sermon, but that's one of the reasons I also love Christianity and, and think this story is true. Because if you think about it, this God could have asked us to do anything. He could have asked us to do like symbolic dances or he could have asked us to do anything. And all he asked his people to do throughout history is to have a meal and to remember what he's done for us. That's it. He's like, the rest, I'll take care of it. It's mine. You just remember. The death of the firstborn also was not just a sign for Egypt, it was a sign for Israel. Both Egypt and Israel were recreated that night. It was an act of love. God was in essence saying, I'm destroying this messy, toxic relationship. And now to Israel, let us begin again. You have a new, new start, a fresh start. And to Egypt, you're no longer the oppressor. Let us begin again. He's recreating both of these people in this night. I wanna invite the worship team back up. As we close, um, we call it the paradigm. We call it the paradigm because through this story, we see how God always acts. Um, a couple thousand years later, there's a man named Jesus and he walks the earth. And we find that as the story recounts, he also has power over the elements. He can calm storms and he can multiply bread and he can cure diseases. In essence, he also walks on water. He doesn't levy out plagues, he tames the plagues. He tames the diseases. He brings order again. 
And Jesus does his teaching and he lives his life and he controls the elements and everyone is drawn to him, but they don't understand him. And then in his story, we have an interlude. We have a liturgical pause and aside where we're told that Jesus is sharing a meal with his friends, his 12 disciples who are Jews. They're all Jews. And he gives them a command. It's the Passover meal. It's the meal that Israel has been sharing for thousands of years that was started here in Exodus. And Jesus goes, well, I'm gonna redefine this meal now. You're still gonna share it, but you're no longer gonna have bitter herbs and unleavened bread. Instead, you're just gonna have bread and wine. The bread is my body for the new gift, the new covenant, and the wine is my blood because I'm about to recreate you again this night. I'm gonna about to recreate the entire world this night. And don't eat a lamb anymore. You don't need it. I am the lamb. And I'm gonna be consumed for the entire world that no more sacrifices will be necessary. And as you go, as long as you live, when your children ask you, why do we come to this table week in and week out? We come to remember to remember that we have no business being up here, that it's a gift, that it's a miracle. This, oh, this is the miracle of all miracles right here. It's a gift. And then from that point in the story, after Jesus recreates his people, recreates the world, he goes and the destroyer comes again and the destroyer kills Jesus and he dies and he's buried. And three days later, he's raised from the dead, never to be killed again. And because he's alive, therefore all may live. And he just says, eat this and remember me. But it's interesting, friends, there's, there's, a, there's a detail that changes. I don't know if you caught it. In Exodus, God kills his enemy to save his people but Jesus isn't his enemy. He inverts it. With Jesus, God kills his firstborn. God kills his son to save his enemies. In Exodus, God says, the enemy dies to save my people. But with Jesus, he goes, no, 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 you don't recognize. You've always been my enemies. You didn't even know it. But we weren't reconciled, even you, Israel. Don't worry, I'm gonna die myself. My son is gonna come and he wants to. And he's gonna die. He's gonna pay the price so that I can turn you, my former enemy, into my family, which is what I've always wanted. That's the gospel. That's the gift of Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Jesus, will you just speak to your people right now? Will you give them eyes to see you? Will you give them eyes to see your blood, your destroyed flesh, which you willingly allowed to be destroyed. No one took your life, as you said. You gave it freely for the world. You are the Passover lamb. 
It's a miracle. It's a miracle that just stuns us. It stuns me, Lord. What God would be so good to us undeserved creatures? We have walked away from you. We defy you. We kill one another in the streets daily. We hate our brothers and sisters. We have no love in our hearts. We know nothing of goodness. We know nothing of grace. And you've never abandoned us. And you've never asked us for anything more than to sit at your table and to look you in the eyes and hear your words of love, saying, I love you. I've always loved you. I created you. I know you. I know you better than you know yourself. I know who I want to make you to be if you'd let me, if you'd follow me. For the people in this room, Lord, who don't know you, who wouldn't call themselves followers of you, Jesus, but whose hearts are stirring within them right now, will you give them courage? Will you give them a willing spirit to just say, Lord, Jesus, I don't know all the elements of this story, but this is a really powerful story. I want to follow you more. I want to just learn who you are. I want to explore. You have permission to work in my life. And for the rest of us, Lord, (laughs) I'm reminded of of St. Teresa of Lisieux's famous quip when her life, the more she learned of you, the more you revealed yourself to her. It just got harder and harder. And she said, Lord, if this is how you treat your friends, no wonder you have so few. For the rest of us who are walking and wondering, where are you, God? How long? As the Jews wondered, as we wonder, where are you? How long? When will the fullness of your salvation be enacted, be realized? When will our our sadness be turned to joy? How long? Would you just speak to them right now? This is my body. This is my blood. Remember me. Remember me. Hey, hey, look up at the cross. Remember me. Remember my love. I know you have so many questions. Oh, I know. You're not ready to hear the answers yet. You will. I'll give them to you. Not yet. Right now, share a meal with your friends and just thank me. Thank my father. He's done it all. Our love for you will never stop. Lord, we meditate on your gift and on your story. Thank you. Jesus, it's in your crucified and resurrected name we pray. Amen.